Fantastic. Okay, let's get on to the Psalms. We're looking through the Psalms at the moment in our series. Today we're looking at Psalm 63. Um, so if you have a Bible, could, if you could find Psalm 63. Uh, as I said, I think previously, Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. So if you open it up, up roughly in the middle, you'll probably land close to where you need to be. So Psalm 63. So while you're finding that, um, as you'll see, it says it's a Psalm by David. So it's another one that's, uh, that King David wrote. And it's titled, My Soul Thirsts for You. And it's about David's longing for more of God. And what we're going to look at today is how this psalm really shows David's heart for worship. A little history about it. Um, when I was preparing, I read that um, the early church, up, to, up until about 400 AD, actually sang this psalm every Sunday before church service. So it's a, it's a big psalm. It's an important psalm. And I think as we go through it, you'll see why the early church would sing it together. And before we read it, just a bit of context. Why did David write it? Where was he when he wrote it? Um, just a quick history lesson on this, because I think it'll help us understand perhaps why he says what he says. We need to do a bit of detective work for the context. Um, there aren't many clues. Uh, there's two clues that help us. Um, and the first in your Bible, you'll probably see it says under the title, A Psalm of David When He Was in the Wilderness of Judah. That's clue number one. And then, just to help you out, at the very end, verse 11, it says, the king shall rejoice in God. That's clue number two. So there's only two things we know about the context. And one, David was in the wilderness, and two, he was king. Or he says he, he calls himself the king. Now, in, um, from what I've looked up, commentators, Bible study notes... They all agree that David uh, wrote this when he was in the wilderness. And there's only two times in the Bible that reference David in a wilderness situation. And all the commentators would agree that it's one of those two. Um, either he was fleeing from King Saul and he went to the wilderness, or he was fleeing from Absalom, who was one of his sons. So quick history of both of those, and you can think about which one you think it is. So the first one, when he was fleeing from King Solomon, sorry, King Saul, is in 1 Samuel 23, 24. And King Saul basically pursues him out of the city, and he wants him dead. And he ends up, David ends up in the wilderness of Ziph, which is near the Dead Sea. Now, if you don't know the story, um, the Israelites wanted a king, and so God gave them King Saul, and he was their first king. And he started well, but it didn't end well, and he ended up doing his own thing. And so God chose David as the next king. And he used the prophet Samuel to go and find David's family. And, um, and he found that David was the youngest one out in the fields. And God told Samuel, this is going to be the next king, King David. So, so the prophet uh, anointed him with oil, which was a sign that he would be king. King Saul is still king at this point, And David ends up actually working you know, with King Saul. And if you know the stories, he defeated Goliath um, while Saul was king. He um, led many battles and won many battles on behalf of King Saul. And he even played the harp for King Saul to help him calm down. But Saul ends up jealous of David. And so he wants to try and kill him on more than one occasion. And that's why David ends up in the wilderness in that instance. And he flees to the wilderness and he's there quite a number of years. So Psalm 63 could be written while David was fleeing from King Saul. He was definitely in the wilderness, but clue number two about king, David wasn't king yet, was he? So he wasn't actually king, although he was anointed, so perhaps he considers himself king. So that could be one of the times that he wrote it. 
The other time was when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And that's in 2 Samuel 15. Now, King David had a number of wives and a number of children. One of his sons, Absalom, actually murdered his half-brother, and David banished him from the city. He later returns, but then Absalom spends the next two years waiting at the gate of the city, and every time someone comes in, he talks to them and sort of says, you know, what a good king I would be, don't you think? And so he persuades many people that he would be a good king. And he, in fact, raises up a whole army who then conspire to go after King David and take the throne. Thankfully, David finds out, and then he, he, he flees the city, and that's why he's in his second wilderness time. He flees to the Mount of Olives, which isn't actually that far from the city. I looked it up. It's only a few kilometers. It's near the, near the River Jordan, and some scholars don't really consider it to be the wilderness, as we would say. So that's why we've got two options, perhaps why he wrote this psalm. If David's fleeing from Saul, he's definitely in the wilderness, but he's not technically king yet. If he's fleeing from Absalom, he's definitely king, but he's not technically in the wilderness. So you can see why many commentators differ on which one it is. Which one is it? I'm not sure. Sorry. I know which one I think, but I'll leave it to you. What is clear, though, is that David... Uh, wrote this psalm while he's being pursued by people who want him gone. And what's also clear, he's in a barren place. He's without comfort. He's away from the city, which means he's away from the place of worship. And yet this psalm shows us his heart towards God. It's a psalm that expresses his longing for God and his praise and his confidence in God. So that's the context. Let's read it together. So Psalm 63, hopefully it'll be behind me. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I, I will sing for joy. My soul clings for you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So that's the psalm. You can see why the early church would sing it regularly. Now, you probably see also there's a lot of overlap in the psalm that Sai spoke on last week when he looked at Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. We could actually sort of say the same thing that Sai said last week. And he spoke on... Uh, David longing for God, and his second point was about us leading ourselves more into God's presence and being closer to him. We can see here that David, again, is thirsting. He's longing for more of God. And you also see there's all the way through this psalm, there's things that he says, I will, and shows us how he presses in. He says, I will seek you. I will look upon you. I will praise you. I will be satisfied in you. I will remember you. I will meditate on you. I will sing. I will cling to you. So that you can see as I said last week, this psalm is about 
pressing in and longing for more of God, and how our responsibility, we have a responsibility as well to press in. It also seems, I don't know about you, but it seems like a lament at the start. Oh God, I seek you. I'm thirsty for you. But it's not a lament. It's far too positive and encouraging, isn't it, to be a lament. It's a hopeful psalm. It's full of great expectation. It's because it's all about worship. It's about the joy and confidence that we have of knowing the privilege we have of, of praising God. David looks back at what God's done. He looks to God and trusts in God for the future. Even in a wilderness, he says, I'm going to praise you. So what I'd like to draw out today is all about worship, looking at David's approach to worship, why he worships and how he worships. And I don't just mean singing. That is one way that we worship, isn't it? But worship is any act where we show our adoration towards God, where we acknowledge him, put him first. So let's look at his worship. And the first thing I want to draw out from this psalm is that David chooses to worship in the wilderness. And that's his response to a difficult situation, which I think is encouraging to us. Faced with the wilderness, he chooses to worship. David's on the run. He's under attack. He's away from home. He's away from God's presence, the sanctuary. But he doesn't stop worshiping. In fact, it's the opposite. The wilderness prompts him to worship. He's using the wilderness experience as, as an example of how much he longs for God. I don't know about you, but he doesn't sound like a man who's, who's spiritually dry in this situation. He's not dry, but he's saying he's in a dry land. His situations, his surroundings are an inspiration for how he wants to express his yearning for more of God. The land's dry and weary, but he is not. You know, think about the plants in a the desert. They don't just sip a, absorb a little water and save some for later, do they? They take all the water they can. In a dry land, plants are desperate for water. They need them to survive, and David's the same. He's saying, I need God in the same way. He's thirsting after him. He's pressing in. He doesn't just want to sip a little of God. He wants to drink deep and be satisfied in God. Uh, Bonner writes about this psalm and sums up David's thirst like this. He says, what assurance, what vehement desire, what soul-searching delight in God, in God alone, in God the only fountain of living water amid a boundless wilderness. So David may be in a physical wilderness. He may be in the middle of a very difficult situation, but he doesn't ease off his pursuit of God. It's God who he thirsts after. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk makes a similar declaration in the face of difficult times. You might know these verses. In Habakkuk 3, he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation." You know, in an agrarian society, one that relies on farming, the prophet's saying, even if the, the harvest yields nothing, even if nothing grows, and even if there are no animals that we can farm, even then we'll still praise God. See, his praise is not conditional to his situation. He's not saying, we're going to praise God because things are going well. No, his joyful response is to a God who saves. That's what Habakkuk is focusing on. It brings him joy, even in the face of potential difficult times. And David's the same. He's not just putting on a brave face and pretending everything's going to be fine. You know, the Psalms show, as we've seen, a real range of emotions. 
In fact, Psalm 57 is written when David was hiding in a cave from King Saul, and Psalm 3 was written when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And in both Psalms, he cries out for God to save him, for God to help him, and yet he still declares his trust in God. What these Psalms show, and especially Psalm 63, is that David made a choice to praise still, because God never changed, even if his situation did. God is still worthy of praise. Amen? It's true that sometimes life doesn't go to plan, does it? It's not how we perhaps wanted it to go. We do face difficult times. We do face hardship. We do face disappointment. We may face persecution. We can feel like we've perhaps been pushed into a wilderness. But like David, we have a choice, don't we? Will we let our wilderness dry us up, or will we use it as a prompt to seek God all the more. So David chooses to worship in the wilderness. The second thing is I think we can draw out is that David worships a personal God. The psalm opens, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. This is not the seeking of someone who doesn't know God. David calls God my God. And that's significant. It shows us that deeply personal nature of David's relationship with God through worship. He's not seeking God because he's lost or that he doesn't know God. It's actually completely the opposite. He's seeking and thirsting after God because he does know him. Spurgeon picks up on this point and says, you can't press into God if you don't know him already. You can't rely on what other people know or what other people have said. It's a personal relationship that drives us to know him even closer. Spurgeon says, how can I seek after another man's God? But it is with ardent desire that I seek after him whom I know to be my own. And the point is, it's the, pers- it's the people you love the most and you know the best. They're the ones you miss the most. They're the ones you want to spend time with, aren't they? The closer you know someone, the more you want to be with them. I was reminded when I was thinking about this of uh, during the summer, uh, my daughter Eve got to go uh, on a trip of a lifetime to, to New York as part of a school trip. Uh, she did really well to raise most of the money herself with a lot of car washing and odd jobs. But while she was away, we really missed her as a family. I mean, it's, you know, she's on the other side of the world and suddenly you become aware that's a long way. And so we would you know, text her, how's it going? Tell us about it. And we didn't get many texts back. And we'd say, send us pictures. And so she'd send us a picture of what she can see. But we no, send us a picture of you. We want to see you. You know, it was the more, you know, the further she was from us, and because we know her so well, we just wanted to be close to her. And I'll be honest here, I was a bit of a dad stalker. On my phone, I've got a, an app where I can, you know, track her phone. So I was tracking where she was. And I'm like, Georgie, she's in Central Park, look, you know. And I'd even sometimes go on Google Street View and have a little look and imagine I was there with her. Sorry, embarrassing. But <laughs> it's because we love her and we wanted to be part of that. We wanted to be close to her. And that's what David's saying too. The more he knows God, the closer he wants to be to him. Through the Bible, God made uh, many covenants with different individuals. And a covenant is an agreement between two parties based on a, a mutual personal commitment to one another. Both sides have a responsibility to main that, maintain that relationship. The key covenants in the Old Testament were between God and Noah, God and Abraham, with Moses, and then with David. And each time, God makes a commitment to his people, makes a promise. For example, to Abraham, he promises to make his family a great nation that will bless all nations. To Moses, he reiterates the promise and then declares that he will be their God and they will be his people. 
And to David, he promises to raise up one of his descendants who will establish a kingdom that will never end. So when David says, you are my God, he's declaring what God has already said about himself. God said, I will be your God. And that's the opening to the psalm. It's the foundation of of all his praise and worship. Kidna says, the simplicity and boldness of thou art my God, you are my God, is the secret to all that follows. Since this relationship is the heart of the covenant from the patriarchs to the present day. In other words, David's worship completely was founded on this personal relationship. I always think of Psalm 139 when I think about God's closeness and intimacy with us. If you don't know it, wonderful psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? This is how close God is. He's not aloof and distant, but he's close and interested in every single bit about us. In the New Testament, James wrote to us to draw near to God, for he will draw near to you. That's an invitation for all of us to come close to God in a personal way, and a promise that God will do the same. And in Jesus, we see even more a closer relationship. Jesus came to fulfill the covenants where we failed. He lived a perfect life, and through his death and resurrection, brings us into a new covenant, that kingdom that will never end that David was promised. And as a result, those who put their faith in Christ are called children of God. I love that we sang that a few times this morning. We're forgiven and we're filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit, again, brings us even closer to God in worship. It's the Spirit that motivates our hearts. It's the Spirit that draws us to Him. It's the Spirit that helps us understand Scripture and even gives us the words to pray when we need them. And as children of God, we come to God as our Father, That's what Jesus taught us to pray. So an even more intimate relationship than even David expressed in these psalms. Isn't that amazing? The next thing I want to draw out is that David worships the truth of who God is. In verse 2, he writes, I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And in verse 5, he writes, I remember you. I meditate on you. David's worship is absolutely laser-focused on the truth of who God is. It leaves David in awe of God. Now, the sanctuary was the place where the corporate worship and, and sacrifice was in the city. And the glory that David speaks of is God's manifest presence. God promised to be present with his people. And at David's time, that presence was with the ark that David had brought into the city. David's longing to be there again, but for now he's stuck in the wilderness, isn't he? He's longing for God, but yet he's holding on to what God has previously done and everything he knows about God. So he chooses to continue worshiping God with all that in mind. He says he meditates on God through the night. In other words, he's thinking about God. What is God like? What does Scripture say about him? What has God been doing in my life? And again, we picked up on that earlier in worship. He says, you've been my help. Your right hand upholds me. Again, that spurs him on to worship more. I don't know about you, but if I was David, I think I'd easily get distracted, stuck in the wilderness. 
I'd probably get down in the dumps thinking about my circumstances and worrying about the future, but, but not David. He's intentionally seeking after God and responding in worship by focusing on who God is and everything he knows. Jesus modeled this for us too, didn't he? That importance of looking to God and holding on to the truth of Scripture. And it was great, Becky, that you shared this morning and you reminded us what Scripture already says. Jesus had his own wilderness experience before he started his earthly ministry. And if you don't know, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I love that Scripture says the next line, he was hungry. I'm not surprised. And it's at that point the devil comes to tempt him. And his first challenge was Jesus turned these rocks into bread. And yes, Jesus did need food. But how did he respond? With scripture. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says he needed more than bread in the wilderness. What he needed was God, and that's where he looks. Against every temptation, he responds with scripture. He places confidence in the truth of who God is, what God had already said. And not only is Jesus a good example, but he is the one who shows us God's power and glory. David said he looked to the sanctuary, to the ark, but we can look to Christ. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we can fix our eyes on the glory of Jesus when we worship, and we will come back to that later. And another aspect, I think, that prompts uh, David to worship is God's love. An essential part of God's character is love. It says in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's so in awe of the love that God has towards him. He says it's better than anything that life could give him, anything that life could offer. How can he say that? Well, it's because life is temporary, but God's love is never-ending. Life is uncertain, but God's love is certain. It's dependable because God doesn't change. So much of our life is dependent on us, isn't it? How hard we work, what we do, how we achieve, and yet God's love is completely unconditional. We can't earn it. You know, one day David's living in a palace, and the next day he's stuck in the wilderness and hiding in a cave. Yet he says, God's love's better than this. Jude wrote similarly in the New Testament. He said, you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's because of God's love that we receive eternal life. Jesus' death in our place was the, our most ultimate, greatest demonstration of God's love. And that's how we become acceptable to him. Jesus himself put love before his own life. And Paul explains it like this. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we worship, let's keep our eyes fixed on the truth of who we know God is, everything that Scripture says about, our, about him. Next, what does, what does David's worship actually look like? If you pull it out from the psalm, he says, My lips will praise. In your name I will lift my hands. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I will sing for joy. The king will rejoice in God. 
David loved to sing and declare how, God, how amazing God is. It's no surprise that he wrote so many of the Psalms, is it? And that's why as a church, we spend so much time uh, singing and, make, and, and, and uh, sharing music and singing together as part of our worship. It's so important that we gather and sing corporately together. In the, in the book of Hebrews, it says, through him, let us continually offer up a, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And that's why Chris and the other worship leaders uh, choose songs really carefully in our worship times because there's power in the words that we sing together and we only want to sing songs which are tr- that, that share truth and align with scripture. We want to sing songs to God and about God. We can also, it's not in this psalm, but we can also worship God through dance. And I'll say I certainly have a long way to go here myself. Again, not in this psalm, but it's a well-known moment in the Old Testament when David brought the ark back into the city. Remember, the ark was a sign of God's presence with his people. And it says in 2 Samuel that David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's some serious dancing, isn't it? It was so much that his wife, who was Saul's daughter, took offense and said that he'd embarrassed himself in the front of everyone. But David didn't care. He says he was celebrating in front of the Lord. That's who he was dancing for. I think we could take something out of David's uh, experience there too. And we will have a sp- spend a time in a moment coming back to worship. And I want to encourage us when we worship, let's bring our worship to God knowing that it's not to anybody else. We can bring our joyful praise to God in singing, through music, clapping, raising our hands, dancing, shouting. It's not a performance, but an audience of one, isn't it? As it says in Hebrews, it's a sacrifice of praise. So let's try and push through that awkwardness. I'm speaking to myself here as well. And let's just offer up our praise in joyful, in any joyful expression that we feel. My last point is that David also worships with confidence in God's purposes. And we come right back to the context of why he wrote it again. Remember, he's forced out of the city. He's away from the tabernacle, the ark. He's being pursued by people who don't want him as king anymore, whether that was Saul or whether that was Absalom. Both of them don't want him as king. They want to be king. And instead, they want to take his life. And David closes out this psalm by lifting his gaze and leaving the outcome of his oppressors to God. So whether it's Saul or Absalom, they're hostile to God's choice of king, and therefore they're hostile to God's purposes. But David's not concerned, is he? His confidence is in God's plan. He declares that he's the king in verse 11, and he's going to rejoice. If I was to paraphrase the last section, I'd probably say, I think David would say something like this. I'm the king because God's chosen me. He's made a covenant with me and my descendants, and what God says can't be changed. He will deal with those who come against me. And I hope that would be an encouragement to us too. When we're faced with our wilderness challenges, we can take confidence in God's promises over our lives and his purposes for us. Following both examples of David's wilderness experiences, David was rightly restored as the king. So we can be encouraged that God is going to restore if he has promised us and said something about our future. He is going to hold that. He's going to keep himself accountable and keep to his word. We can trust in his purposes for us too. Again, the writer of the Hebrews encourages us to run the, with endurance the race that is before us. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew his purpose. He was only able to go to the cross because he knew that was the only way to make a way for us to be acceptable to God. It says he knew joy through fulfilling God's purpose, even though it was going to cost him personally. David was forced out of the city by others who didn't want him as king. And hundreds of, later, hundreds of years later, we find Jesus has been forced out of the city, taken to the cross outside the city. Jesus was rejected by many. They refused to honor him as the Messiah, the rightful king descended from David. And instead, they mocked him as king of the Jews, they wrote on this cross. They left him to die. But through his wilderness on the cross and his separation from the Father, Jesus rose again and is now seated on a throne in heaven at the right hand of God. So again, we can worship because Jesus has gone through a greater wilderness than any of us could ever imagine, and he did it for us. He did it to bring us out of a wilderness, our lonely wandering away from God and into the very presence of God. Amen? Amen. We're going to spend some time worshiping. and invite the band back up, please? Can I encourage us to stand while the band get ready? Let's respond as David did. I don't know if you are going through perhaps a wilderness situation, but if you are, bring it to God. And I encourage you to choose to worship. As we worship, let's fix our eyes on the truth of what we know about God. As we sing these words and the truth in the songs, let's fix our eyes on his character and who he is and what he's said already. Let's choose to, to push the awkwardness away. And like David, let's dance with all our might. Let's sing with our best, our, our, I say our best voices. Perhaps we can't sing, but that doesn't matter. Let's give our praise of worship to God. So let's just close our eyes, and I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you we get to come before you just as we are. And we know, Lord, that you love to be here with us. We thank you that we can dance, we can sing, we can shout, we can whistle, we can raise our hands, we can do anything in our acts of worship to you because you love to dwell amongst us. Father, help us to overcome any awkwardness. Help us to fix our eyes on the truth of who you are. Help us to choose to push into worship because we know you and we want to know you more. Thank you that when we draw close to you, you promise to draw close to us. We ask, Lord, you'd fill us afresh with your spirit today that we would know you in such a close and intimate way, Lord, that we would be caught up with our eyes fixed upon you. Jesus, help us to worship you this morning. Help us to trust in your purposes over our lives. What you have said will come to pass. What you have promised over our lives, you will not change. We thank you that you don't change. We thank you for your love expressed through Christ at the cross. We have so much to, so much to thank you for. And we ask to be here now in this time of worship as we come back to fix our eyes on you. Bless you, Lord. Amen.